But there are, sometimes there are things about it that we need to be reminded of. We're going to see that today, that, that Paul reminds the church in Corinth about the gospel, that he seeks to clarify it. And so that's what we're trying to do over these three weeks, trying to get to know the gospel a little better. Last week, we looked at this passage from Romans, from the first chapter of Romans, in which, which Paul says that he is unashamed of the gospel. And we sort of talked about what it means to be unashamed of the gospel, and that, and that sometimes, because we're called to share the gospel and the good news with people, and yet too often we don't, that we act as if we are ashamed of the gospel. And so we looked at a couple of reasons, reasons for that. You know, they're, first of all, they're, they're the claims of the gospel, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and those can seem to be a little outlandish. And so maybe we're, maybe we're ashamed because of the actual claims of the gospel, but we also talked about how we live in a world in which exclusive truth claims, quote-unquote, are looked down on. And when we talk about the exclusivity of the gospel, that only by the gospel can you be saved, that maybe we can act as if we're ashamed of that. We're scared of sharing that truth with people because we're afraid of how they're going to respond, how they're going to react to that. But what we do know is we do know that the gospel is not simply good news. That is what the word gospel means, is good news. But that it is, in fact, the best news. And that good news, the best news, can change everything. You know, life is about keeping first things first. There are lots of good things in the world, but when we can get the order twisted, our life can get out of balance and our life can get out of order, right? Like, recreation is a good thing. We need the ability to to relax and to rejuvenate and to reset. But if we live a life only of leisure and we never work, the repo man's going to show up sooner rather than later, right? Things can get out of balance. Things can get out of, out of whack. We've got to put first things first. And the church, like us as people, needs to make sure that we're putting first things first. There are lots of good things that can happen in the church. But occasionally we can get things out of balance. Brothers and sisters, we've been given one mission. We've been given one mission. And that is to go and make disciples of all nations. That's the the great commission. That's what we're called to do. That was Jesus' final marching orders to the church. The mission is shared by the church's message, by the message that we send out into the world, by the Gospels. And every time the church gathers, the Gospel should be heard clearly. And, and I hope, it is my prayer every week that it is heard clearly. I also recognize that I am a fallible human being, and there are some weeks where maybe it's not as clear as it could or should be. But my prayer every week is that the gospel is clearly heard. And when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and we are in 1 Corinthians this morning, 
when he's writing to the church at Corinth, he, he wants to show them, wants to show us that the gospel is the most important message. And that in clarifying the gospel, he defines exactly what that message is. So we are in 1 Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read the first eight verses. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, for those of you who don't speak ancient Greek. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He then appeared over to, to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it and live it. Let us pray. God, as we, as we enter into this time, as we, as we seek to study and, and to get to know your gospel better, as we seek to internalize these words, this message from you into ourselves, when, as we seek to, to bury this in our heart, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. So as, as as we look at these these just these few verses here toward the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, there are about four things that we can pull out from it. The first thing that we can pull out is that we must prioritize the significance of the gospel. We must prioritize the significance of the gospel. And this is, this is what we see in verses 1 through 3. In chapter 15, 1 through 3. See, even here in the early church, there's a need to clarify the gospel. The folks that Paul are writing to are, are only a decade or so, a few years removed, and only have a degree or so of separation away from Jesus. When I say degree of separation, you know what I'm talking about? There's that, there's that fun game called the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, in which you take the actor Kevin Bacon and you try and link him to any other actor in less than six steps. And it's only possible because Kevin Bacon has had a long and very active acting career. So it's this, it's, this whole, it's this whole party game, which became a lot easier with the advent of the Internet and IMDb, and you could look things up. There's this idea of degrees of separation. And the believers in Corinth are only one or two degrees away from Jesus. None of them may have known Jesus in his lifetime, but they have certainly known people who knew Jesus or 
they certainly know Paul who knew people who knew Jesus. So they're only a few degrees of separation from Jesus. They're a lot closer than six. And yet Paul still needs to make clear to them the gospel that he preached to them. You know, it's not like they've gotten some ideas mixed up and twisted because somebody showed up and they didn't carry the whole message or, or, or they had misunderstood things. It was Paul who established, who planted the church in Corinth. He's the one who preached the gospel to them, and they still need clarity. Let me tell you how hopeful that word is to preachers. If Paul has to go back and clarify, then it's not that big a deal if I have to go back and clarify. But if Paul has to do that, he's got to clear some things up for them. So he's saying, I'm, I've, got to, I've got to clarify this for you. He, he's got to clarify it because of, the, because of the significance. He wants to make sure that it's clear because of, of what it is. See, the, the, it was the, by the gospel that Paul preached. It was by the gospel that Paul is clarifying that the people in the church in Corinth were being saved. It's the same gospel by which we are being saved. I want us to note that phrase, they were being saved. It's not a simple past tense action. It wasn't that at one moment in the past there was this singular moment and at that moment they were saved and it was in the past. It was a continuous, ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that they were being saved. Our salvation is not something that happens in one day and then it's done. It's something that happens every day. Victor yesterday, in one of the wisest things that I've heard somebody say in a long time, said that there were days where he had to wake up and still choose Jesus. There are days that we have to wake up and still choose Jesus. You know, we put so much emphasis on, on conversionism, on this idea that, that, that we respond once to the gospel and then that it's done, that we forget the sanctification that comes after that, the growing in Christ-likeness that comes after that. The growth, the, the becoming of a disciple, the becoming a follower of Jesus. There's a struggle every day to kill the sin in our lives. There's a struggle every day to grow, more, to, grow to be more like Jesus. A struggle every day to be better. And often, and by often I mean all the time, we fail. Because we're human. But by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we continue to grow closer to Him and continue to grow in Christ-likeness. That's 
One of the things, if you remember last week, and we looked at the three circles, if you were with us last week, you looked at the three circles, and that's one of the things that the gospel does, right? It allows us to recover and pursue God's design. That's what we're talking about here. This ability to to recover and pursue God's design. This means that we should be becoming more and more like Christ every day, leaving the values and the ways of the world behind. You know, believing, being a believer, isn't just about putting a Christian veneer on our pre-existing life. It's about being born again. It's about becoming something new and transformed. Are you all familiar with veneer? I'm going to assume that many of us are, but I'm also going to assume that most of us don't have fathers who are very into woodworking like I have, so you may not be as familiar with veneer. Veneer is a very thin piece of wood that you glue down to the surface of of some lesser wood underneath. And so it, it looks as if on a piece of furniture that you have perhaps a piece of cherry But it's not solid cherry. Underneath, you've got cheap pine. And one of the things that can happen with veneer, when the veneer is on the surface, that wood underneath, not only is it cheap and subpar, but that wood underneath can rot. And because it's not all one piece, because it's not all one thing, that veneer can hide the rot that's inside. You know, veneer is very useful in woodworking. It can hide some crimes. Daddy's in the middle of building furniture for the nursery. And because he loves me, but his love falls short of that of God, he's not building it out of solid wood because that's too expensive. He's building it out of maple plywood but you don't want to see the edge of maple plywood on furniture right so he'll be putting a piece of veneer around that edge and it will look like it's a solid piece of maple and it will be great and it will be beautiful and it will be infinitely better than anything i could have done certainly and anything better that we could have bought my grandfather made me a homemade cradle my daddy is making his grandson a homemade or daughter. This is, a, this, is a, <clears throat> this is a continuing conversation in our house. Veneer is useful in woodworking. It's deadly in our own lives. How many of us think that we can just paste a thin veneer of churchianity over the cheap tawdry and subpar base of our lives and call it a day. See, the gospel is the only way that you can be saved. That's not a nice thing to hear in our pluralistic world. People want to go out there and they want to say, every road leads to the top of the mountain. But it doesn't. The gospel is it. You know, they say that, you know, every road leads to the top of the mountain, right? 
But here's the thing. Those different roads, those different paths, those different ways have competing truth claims about who God is and what God does. They can't all be true. One of them can be true. And so we come along and, and, and we take this, this, this base in our lives and we think that it doesn't really matter what we do. And so, and so for respectability and to get along, and because maybe we don't know any better, we just paste this thin veneer down over our lives and we move on. And we think that that's it. And there's no transformation. We look like a solid piece of cherry on the outside, but on the inside we're a piece of rotting sheep pine plywood. Because we cannot come to know God, we cannot come to know the whole truth about God except through faith in Jesus. And that's why Paul says, I, for what I passed on to you as most important. There are lots of important things in our life. There are lots of important things in the life of the church. But the most important thing is the gospel. It is that first thing that we've got to get right before anything else can fall into order behind it. We can do all of the good and all of the important things in the world, but unless we get this first thing right, none of the rest of it matters. It doesn't matter how big the building is, how pretty the building is, how many people come to the clothes closet, how many people are fed through the food pantry. None of that matters if we aren't getting the first thing right. You know, the church in Corinth was messed up. They had a lot of problems. I know sometimes we like to talk about Oh, you know, our church has problems, or that church has problems, or that church I was in before had problems. And if you think your church has problems, just read some of Paul's letters. Those churches had problems. And Paul has taken most of this letter to the Corinthians to address these problems. But here, toward the end of his letter, he comes back and he goes, all of this stuff is important. I've taken all of this time to talk to you about these things. But remember what the most important thing is is. It is the gospel. All of the rest of that stuff I, Paul, have talked to you, the church in Corinth about, is meaningless if you don't get this right. And so in order to get it right, we move to point two. We must recognize the substance of the gospel. We must recognize the substance of the gospel. Again, it's only 15 to 20 years from the time of the crucifixion, but Paul still needs to clarify what the substance of the gospel is. And he does this here in verse 4. You know, it was only 15 to 20 years for them. It's been a little longer than that for us. So maybe from time to time, we need clarification and reminder as well. Paul doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding of the gospel message. And so he, what he lays out, he lays out there are three main truths to the gospel. The first, Christ died for our sins. 
Christ died for our sins. Christ died on behalf of our sins. The death of Christ was not some random event, but had a divine plan. He took on the payment that we owed for the debt of our sin, and he paid it in his death. Christ died for our sins. The second point Paul reminds us of is that he was buried. Okay, that seems a little weird that that's an important part. But what happens? Who gets buried? Dead people. Dead people get buried. And what Paul is saying here is, is Jesus actually died. It was not a fraud. God knew that there would be people who would deny the resurrection. There were, from the very moment of the resurrection, there were those who denied it. Who said, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. To deny the resurrection, there, there are two ways you can deny the resurrection. One is to deny the fact that Jesus come, came back from the dead. And we're going to get to that one in just a second. The other way is to deny that Jesus ever actually died. And this is one of the things that shows up over and over and over again in the early church. People who called themselves Christians who said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. He, he, he just sort of passed out on the cross. Or, or that wasn't really Jesus on the cross. It was actually Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene took Jesus' place. Simon is the man who's asked to carry Jesus' cross on his way to Golgotha. And, and so that's, there are people who believe that to this day, that, that it was Simon of Cyrene who took Jesus' place and Jesus sort of disappeared into the crowd. You know, Muslims believe that Jesus was real. They believe that Jesus was a prophet of God. What they don't believe is they don't believe that he was the son of God and they don't believe that he died on the cross. So when Jesus, when Paul says that Jesus was buried, he's emphasizing that Jesus died for our sins. He was dead and buried. You know the beginning of a Christmas carol? Marley was dead to begin with. Of this, all things must be clear or nothing good can come of the story. Let's rewrite that. Jesus was dead to begin with. That must be understood or nothing good can come of our story. Jesus was dead and he was buried. He didn't swoon. He didn't disappear into the crowd. Someone else didn't take his spot. It wasn't an apparition on the cross. These are all things that have been said over the last 2,000 years. So the first thing, he died for our sins. The second thing, he was buried. And the third, he rose on the third day. You know, if all Jesus did was die on the cross, then his death doesn't matter. There are an awful lot of people whose theology ends on Good Friday and never gets to Easter Sunday. The death is centrally important. Without the death, our sins are not paid. The resurrection is centrally important. Without the resurrection, death isn't conquered. Death wins. 
And there are an awful lot of people whose theology ends on Good Friday or it begins on Easter Sunday, and it doesn't include both. When we went through the training um, last year for the, th- for the three circles, one of the things that we pointed out that's clear, that as you're sharing the gospel message, you need to include all three of these elements. That it is not a full explication of the gospel if you don't include he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's not something that Jimmy Scroggins made up when he did three circles. He gets it right here from Corinthians, from Paul. All three elements are important. Remember how I said that we were going to come to the answer of the resurrection? There are two ways you can deny the resurrection. You can deny that Jesus died or you can deny that he rose from the dead. So the third thing is that we must see and understand and acknowledge that the resurrection was witnessed. It was witnessed. And that's, that's what verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are about. It's Paul's listing of the witnesses. You know, in our day, this is the more common way to deny the resurrection. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He was a real person. He was a real teacher. He was perhaps a gifted teacher. He was perhaps a moral teacher, an ethical teacher. He was crucified, but he didn't come back from the dead. You know, we like to talk a lot about the faith of the founding fathers. And there were some of our founding fathers that had a very orthodox faith that would seem very comfortable and very familiar to us. And there were some of our founding fathers who just didn't. And Thomas Jefferson was one of those. Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant man, but he did not know Jesus. And he did not know God. One of the things that Jefferson did at one point was he took his Bible and he cut out all of the references to supernatural events and miracles in Jesus' life. And he took what was left and he put it together and he created his own, his own gospel. You can find it. You can buy it online. It's called the Jefferson Bible. If you want to see it, I've got a, I've got a copy. One of the things that Jefferson cuts out that Jefferson denied was the resurrection. Because, after all, people don't come back from the dead, right? Well, right, that's the point. (laughs) Paul knew this. He knew that this was going to be one of the ways that people were going to deny the resurrection. And so he's, he's saying, don't take my word for it. He rose from the dead and he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Peter and the eleven. Peter and the other ten. And then he says he appeared to 500 more, and most of them are still alive. Why is he telling them that most of them are still alive? He's telling them to go ask them. These are folks that were here. These are folks who saw it, who witnessed it. You can go. You can talk to them. I'm not telling you, oh, and yeah, 500 people saw it, and they're all miraculously dead. No, he's saying most of them are still alive. Go, ask them. Go, do the research. He's encouraging them to check it out for themselves. 
test the veracity of his claim against the eyewitness testimony of people who were there that they could hunt down, that they could see. You know, Luke does something very similar as he's writing Luke and Acts. He tells the reader, the people that I've talked to are still there. You can go. You can talk to them. You can ask them yourself. Man, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could go and find one of these 500 people and ask them? Now, while they might have still been alive 15 to 20 years after the events, I don't think they're alive almost 2,000 years after the events. But they still can give their testimony to us. Many, if not most, of these people that Paul names, including himself, die a martyr's death. Now, I am cynical about human nature. I am cynical about human nature. But I do not believe that you die for a lie that you create. Maybe you die for a lie that someone else tells that you don't know is a lie. We've had a lot of that in the history of the world. But you don't die for a lie that you create. You know, there's a really famous, um, there's a really famous uh, second century writing of the martyrdom of a man named Polycarp, which does not actually, in fact, mean many fish, but Polycarp, carp's a kind of fish. It was a pun. I'm working on my dad jokes. Polycarp is martyred. Polycarp was a disciple of John. Polycarp wasn't one of these 500. He was too young for that. But he had sat at the foot of one of the men who had been there, one of the men who had sat at the foot of Jesus, and he was so convinced that what John had told him was true from what he had seen in John's own life that when the time came, he was willing to die for it. Peter died for it. Paul died for it. Countless other Christians in the first and second century died because they had witnessed the resurrection, because it wasn't some fanciful thing they made up, because they knew it to be true. The final thing that we can sort of pull from this passage is that we must emphasize the supremacy of the gospel. We must emphasize the supremacy of the gospel. Why is the gospel the most important message in the Bible and in the church? Because there's, there's a lot of really good stuff in here that points to the gospel, but isn't the gospel. It points to Jesus, but it's not Jesus. Why is the gospel the most important message? Because it is the only message that can take us from sin to salvation. It is the only one that can truly message, the only message that can truly transform you down to your core, that can strip back that veneer and can take that dirty, 
rotten, subgrade. Man, we're not even going to go with plywood. We're going to go with particle press board and turn it into solid, rich mahogany or cherry or oak. The only thing that can strip back that veneer, that can change what's underneath is the gospel. It doesn't matter how much you say the right things, how often you do the right things, how often you present the right things. It doesn't matter how great your veneer is. Until you are stripped down to your core and transformed, you are not in relationship with Jesus. We've learned something very disturbing this week. We've learned that a man that many of us looked up to, that many of us read his books and listened to his lectures, was a sexual predator of the worst kind. We're only finding out after his death. He stood on stages around the world and preached the gospel, and people came to faith through his preaching. But we're learning that the life of Ravi Zacharias was just a veneer. That there was no transformation. I weep when I consider how many Matthew 7 Christians there are sitting in our churches and in our pews. Those who confess Jesus with their lips, who cry out, Lord, Lord, but, but have, who have the veneer down but whose core is rotting. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The veneer can look great, but without the supremacy of the gospel, there can be no transformation. You know, we all need to ask a question. We need to ask the question, if I were lost, if I were without Christ, and every Christian in the world shared the gospel as much as I share the gospel, would I ever hear it? Let me tell you, when I read that question this week, I had to sit for a while with myself. And the answer I came up with, I came up with to that question made me uncomfortable. It's easy for us to think to the responsibility of sharing this amazing, transforming news, this best of all possible news, it's easy for us to think that's somebody else's job. And that's why you pay a pastor, right? That's, that's why we contribute to the cooperative program and to the mission board. Somebody else's job. Somebody else's responsibility. But it's all of our responsibility. You know, the gospel 
has the power to transform even the most depraved of sinners. John Newton was a sailor, which that alone should give you some indication. And he was a slaver. He would sail to the coast of Africa and steal people away from their homes, put them in the most wretched of conditions, and turn them over to the very worst of humanity, to the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. But John Newton met Jesus. And John Newton was transformed. See, John Newton had grown up in England. Man, the Church of England at the time, they had that veneer thing down. But then men like Whitfield and Wesley and others came along and started stripping that veneer back. And the veneer was stripped back on Newton's life, and he was transformed. And he went from being a slaver to being a clergyman, from a slaver to being one of the strongest advocates for the abolition of the slave trade that England had. Because the veneer was stripped away, because he was transformed. If the gospel is not true, nothing else matters. If the gospel is not true, surrender to nihilism, surrender to meaninglessness, Nothing matters. But if the gospel is true, it's the only thing that matters. It's the first thing. It's the best news. It's the news that changes everything. As we get ready to end our time together this morning, we're going to sing, Nearer My God to Thee,